I'm going to start with kind of a cruel teacher trick, uh, see who was paying attention last week. I'm going to ask a question based on last, last week's message. So if you weren't here last week, you know, you can kind of be off the hook for not, not knowing the answer. Uh, how many of you have been called to respond to God? Okay, here's, it's, it, the answer is, uh, yeah, you can put your hands down. The answer is everybody, or I believe everybody. Of course, this is my belief, and I'll explain that. And I kind of explained it last week. I'll do a quick review of that part. If you're not, you might even say, well, I don't even believe in God. I know he hasn't called me. Well, if, you, if you're not a believer in God, that's it. That's the subject of your call at this point in your life. It's, it's a call to repentance, to repent of your unbelief and turn to Jesus. But if you're a believer, if, you're, if, if that's history for you, um, maybe you recall this from last week. Believers in Jesus can identify their calling by looking for their what? Look at your gifts. Because God doesn't give us gifts to put on a shelf and impress our friends and be more accomplished. He gives us gifts for a purpose, right? We've been called to advance the kingdom. I like the way Brian Russell said it. The gospel comes to me on the way to somebody else. And so if I've been given a gift and I've been given, you know, a few decades after, uh, after coming to Jesus to live here on this earth, it's not, you know, just so I can watch more TV, it's so I can advance the kingdom. And so that's one way to know. So I believe God's given all of us gifts, and God's given all of us a calling to use those gifts. And sometimes in the church, there's a lot of false guilt, because we tend to think somebody else's gift is better than, your, than my gift. And like, I was talking to Sandra about that after the first service. I, I don't feel the call to, to adopt. And sometimes I feel guilty about that, because I know people who do, and I think they're better than me because uh, they're nicer. Um, and, uh, and yet many people don't feel the gift or the call to, to stand in front of a group and speak publicly. And it would be cruel of me to say, well, you just need to do it. Um, and so the point is, I'm not responsible for answering your call, and you're not responsible for answering my call. I'm responsible for using the gifts that God gave me. And so that was what we learned last week, and Saul was the guy that dropped the ball. And Esther was the one and, and Mordecai, who kind of pick up his slack. Well, the reason I did that is I, I felt some conviction. I don't want to just trick you into giving wrong answers, but I felt some conviction that I, I, I'm hoping for Sundays to be a little more interactive. And I'm not talking about just a free-for-all where anyone speaks. I believe in having a service that's orderly. But I also believe in a service where people expect to respond. Uh, Jesus was a great teacher because when people left his teaching, they went and did what he said. You know, they didn't listen to Jesus preach and then walk out and shake his hand and say, you know, that was really interesting. You've given me a lot to think about. You know, he said, go heal people and cast out demons. And what did they do? They went and healed people and cast, cast out demons. And so we, if, if your church experience is showing up on Sunday morning and watching the show, that's okay, sort of. I mean, you're welcome. We're not going to bug you. But we believe that... that this is where we celebrate the love of God and we, we, we kind of get our batteries recharged and become equipped to go out there and do the, do the work of the kingdom. And so I'm going to give another assignment at the end of the service today, or I'm going to give sort of a, a, an interactive part, and there's something I'm going to encourage everybody in the room to do, and then a few bold ones among you, I'm going to give you an opportunity to, uh, to, to give a short testimony next week about what, what the Lord has shown you. And so uh, you can go ahead and pray now. God, is that me? You know, do you have me to do that? And I was surprised and encouraged by the response after the first service. So uh, I'd planned on doing a regular message on Esther 4 after the testimonies, but uh, 
there may not be time. Uh, so we'll, we'll see. Um, but I'll talk about that at the end. Let's dig back into Esther. We're going to finish chapter four today, which will get us roughly halfway through this series. There are actually 10 chapters, but we're going to race through the last two. So I'm going to do four more messages, I think, on the book of Esther. Um, and so this is the, the midway point. In biblical context, I'm going to, I realized last week when I ran over that I actually prepared a message that was on time, but I spent too much time on the review. That's why, why it ran so long. So I'm going to go shorter on the review because we have podcasts now and we have CDs back there. So if you missed something from the last couple of weeks, just, just pick up the CD or, or you know, you can search on, uh, Samantha's hooked this up, you can just search on iTunes um, and it's a free download uh, for your MP3 player. So it's like, you know, we're all plugged in now. So in Bible context, there are three history books in the Old Testament that tell about Israel after they were captured and taken into exile. The books are Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And there are a couple of prophets that prophesied during this period. One of them is probably one of the most famous prophets with the, some of your favorite Bible stories from your childhood, and that's the prophet Daniel. Daniel prophesied to the, to the Jews in exile and actually prophesied to the Babylonians and Persians. Um, while he was in exile. And so if you want to put this in Bible context, if you want to read the Bible chronologically, read the book of Ezra chapter 6, then the book of Esther, and then Ezra chapter 7. That's where it fits in. And it starts in 483 BC. All of the action occurs in Persia, um, in the royal palace, and several years, it's not real obvious, but the text is plain, several years pass between each chapter. So this takes place over the span of several years. Ancient Persia, uh, they were like the top dogs of the Fertile Crescent in between the Babylonians and the Greeks. And they introduced a couple of things that we, uh, that we appreciate in world history. The king was under the law. They introduced postal system and really a well-developed bureaucracy. Um, in chapter one, there's this six-month pep rally because they're getting ready to go to war against the Greeks. And the last week of that is this big feast, this celebration, and the theme of the celebration is aren't we Persians great and isn't Xerxes a majestic king? And it's spoiled by Vashti's disobedience. He, uh, he, it, the Bible says his heart was merry with wine and so he summoned his wife to come in and, and to, to come into his presence so he and his drunken buddies could have a look at her. And she turned down that invitation and he, his, his merriness turned to rage and on his, the advice of his counselors, he banished her in order to replace her. In between chapters one and two, Persia goes to war with Greece and loses. Chapter two, Xerxes comes home, starts missing his wife and his advisors give him some more questionable advice. How about have a big beauty contest, try out and we'll uh, get all the beautiful young versions to be part of your harem. And uh, you can try them all out, see which one you like the best. And the winner of this shameful contest is Esther. And so, so she becomes the next queen of Persia. And then some more time passes. And in chapter 3, that was last week, we're introduced to a new character. His name's Haman, who is elevated and becomes uh, the vice king, sort of the number two guy. And we did a, a, a good bit last week on the blood feud between Haman's people and Mordecai's people. I'm not going to go back into that today. Uh, if, uh, if you're interested more about that, you'll just need last week's message. But we've seen Esther in chapter 2 elevate from orphan to concubine to queen. And then in chapter 3, this guy Haman gets elevated. And let's take a, just a look at a, a couple of key verses from chapter 3 to set the stage. Verse 1 says, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, 
elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all of the other nobles. So he's number two in the kingdom. And then look at the end of that passage, verse 2. Mordecai would not kneel down and pay him honor. And some commentators, I think, give Mordecai too much credit for this, as if he's refusing to honor Haman. But this, this bowing, that's not an act of worship. It's an act of honor and respect. If you were in, if you were in Buckingham Palace today uh, and you're a gentleman, the appropriate thing would be to, to bow if the queen came into your presence, and if you were a lady, it would be to curtsy. Would that be an act of worship? Oh, I don't think so. Do you have to deny? Would that be an act of idolatry? I don't, I don't think that is. So Mordecai won't show Haman the honor that everyone else is showing him. And remember, this is 2,500 years ago in the Persian court, so it's a, it was the accepted thing to do. Now, Haman's response to that is over the top. He's mad at Mordecai to the point of wanting to kill him, but killing him isn't enough. He wants to kill the whole, his whole tribe. Uh, take a look at verse 5. When, Morde when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Here's the big threat. This is the whole conflict of the book of Esther, that Haman, this little proto-Hitler, wants to wipe out all the Jews in all of, all of the Persian Empire, which is in the Persian Empire at that point is the whole Fertile Crescent. Let's take a look at the, uh, the end of the chapter. So Haman goes to Xerxes and kind of tricks him into this, so, to agreeing to this plan to wipe out all of this rebellious tribe. And Xerxes agrees to it. And so Haman's plan's in action. 11 months from now, they're going to wipe out all the Jews. Verse 15, spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink. It's kind of, kind of a ludicrous picture to me. They're just they're congratulating themselves on their good plan. But the city of Susa was bewildered. And that, that part's interesting to me. Like the town they live in, they don't get it. What are these guys about? You know, the king and his number two, are, we're going to kill some Jews, and they're celebrating that. But let's take a look now at chapter 4. Mordecai is not at all bewildered. He's not at all confused. He knows exactly what this means. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only so far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. Sackcloth and ashes. I want to talk about that for just a minute. Even today, ash is a sign of repentance. And, and mourning. Uh, Gina and I flew to uh, San Francisco, I think it was, last year on Ash Wednesday. And we've grown up in mostly a Protestant community and have lived in mostly a Protestant community in, in our adult lives. So I remember walking through, through the airport and I was surprised the first couple times I saw people with ash on their forehead. And I hadn't really seen that in, before. And the first guy, I just thought he was dirty. Um, and then I saw it again and I saw it again and again, and you know, Gene and I were like, what's with this? And we, eventually we figured out, oh, it's Ash Wednesday. This must be a Catholic thing, uh, the, w the way they show repentance. Am I right about that? <laughs> um, so I, I think that's what, what was going on. And, and so throughout history, ashes have been used as a kind of a sign of penitence. Sackcloth, you hear this phrase a good bit in the Old Testament. Anytime people want to repent or, or mourn, they put on sackcloth. Sackcloth is, I, I can't, it's hard for me to imagine something more uncomfortable to wear. I mean, I think of, I think of like one of those woolen army blankets and I think, can you imagine just wearing that as a shirt? You know, how uncomfortable that would be. 
Um, these were made out of goat's hair, and they were the same material they would use to make tents back then. And people would wear them just like a, a big tunic, maybe belted a little bit, um, but they would just wear this like flour sack looking thing made out of goat hair, very uncomfortable. And the purpose is to show repentance, to show mourning, and really just to embrace the discomfort of God's people. It's like, well, God's judging us. It's not good for me to be comfortable and happy. I should, I should feel it as kind of sort of the, the idea. Um, and you see this several times in the Old Testament. When, when it looks like God's judgment is coming, people are put on sackcloth and ashes. In the book of Jonah, when Jonah prophesies to Nineveh, and they repent, they put on sackcloth and ashes, and they even put sackcloth on their animals, which I think is kind of funny. I wonder what they do. Um, but, uh, but, but they just want to totally embrace it. And then I thought this part was just kind of interesting. At the very end of verse 2, Mordecai can't go into the king's palace when he's wearing the sackcloth because evidently the Persian royal dress code prohibits that, which is sort of interesting to me. I, I just picture one of these signs like you see in front of a restaurant, you know, shirt and shoes required, no tank tops, no sackcloth. And I'm thinking, how much did that come up where people tried to get into the Persian court wearing sackcloth? But evidently it was common enough they made a rule against it. So no, no sackcloth. Verse 3, it's not just Mordecai, it's all of Israel that's going into mourning. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Can you picture this if you're a Jewish person living in the Persian Empire? The order comes down, the word spreads fast. About 11 months from now, all of your people are going to be executed. I mean, it's, it's like a death penalty sentence, a death warrant for your entire tribe, your entire nation. Let's go to verse 4. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. The rest of the chapter is pretty much a, a conversation between Esther and Mordecai, except they don't meet face to face. It all takes place through a messenger. Verse 6, so Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. This tells me that Haman's somewhat of an insider. Remember, early on in the, in the book, he foiled an, an assassination plot by overhearing two guys plot against the king. And now here, last, last chapter recorded this conversation between Haman and Xerxes, where Haman offered to pay money into the treasury um, in order to fund his plan to wipe out all the Jews. Mordecai knows the exact amount, and he passes that on to Esther. How does he know that? He's, he's some, somehow a court insider. We know the text doesn't say exactly what he is, but we know he's some kind of official, relatively minor official in the Persian court, but evidently he's one that's got his ear to the ground. Verse 8, he also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. So here's the deal. 10, 11 months from now, we're all going down. And why don't you go to the king and see if you can help us out? Esther finds this plan to be have a problem. Uh, verse 9. Hathach went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know 
that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law. What do you suppose the penalty is for, for presuming to show up in the king's presence without being asked? Well, they're harsh back then. It's the death penalty, verse 11, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. So she explains the law, and then she explains a problem with her own relationship with Xerxes, but 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So here's the deal. King's on his throne uh, in Persia. If you show up and say, hey, king, and he hasn't asked to see you, death, that's a death penalty crime. It seems crazy harsh to me, but 2,500 years ago in Persia, so that's their law. Now, he can show some grace and mercy by extending his scepter and saying, okay, come on in. But if you show up and he's in a bad mood, he's like, what are you doing here? It's, that's it. You know, death penalty for you. Now, as Esther evaluates her chances, there are two things she knows. One is Queen Vashti lost her throne for being too uppity. Um, and so that's her, <clears throat> that, that's the, the context of which, in which she got the throne. And secondly, how long has it been since she's seen the king? 30 days. Now, remember, none of your marriages are like the Persian royal. I mean, all royal marriages are dysfunctional. And Persian royal, I mean, can you imagine living your marriage where every fight is a matter of national security? Where, where it, it just seems to me like a, a, an impossible, almost an impossibility. Every royal marriage I've, I've studied in depth seems dysfunctional to me. And this, this one seems, you know, no doubt. But can you imagine? It's 30 days since you've seen your spouse, and, and remember, there's no, there's no equality in this relationship. He's the king, and she's his subject. So that for us to compare it to our marriages is, you know, we're, we, we, we've got definitely some cultural bias that would keep us from seeing this like, like they would have seen it. So she's thinking about her chances when she goes in to see the king without being summoned, and she's factoring in the fact he hasn't sent for me in 30 days. Uh, he's uh, obviously not that interested in me anymore or doesn't care uh, as much for me as he once did. So she's not too excited about her chances. Now, this next passage to me seems like a masterful reply. Mordecai kind of lays it out for you. You've ever had a tough decision to make and you, you made like two columns of pros and cons? And Mordecai lays it out for you and he pretty much makes it plain. You just don't have much choice. Um, Sure, you're, going to, you're sentenced to death, or you might be sentenced to death if you go into the king unbidden, but you're already sentenced to death. So let's take a look. Verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish, and who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. I want to look at this passage in some depth, because this to me is really the key of the book, and one of the key messages we can all learn. Mordecai's answer seems pretty harsh at one point, but there's a, there's a, there's a truth here that's just inescapable. Everybody dies, and we act like it's this horrible tragedy that comes out of nowhere and we're surprised by it, like, oh, what? and yet it's it's a circle of life, you know, it's, a, it's coming. It, and the Bible makes it plain. It's appointed unto man wants to die. Uh, pre precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, it says in Psalm 116, I think. And so Mordecai says to her, what do you have to gain by remaining silent? You, know, you and all of your people have already been sentenced to death. Um, and, and he 
there's a, there's a spiritual truth I see here, and that is it's not really my job to save my life. It's my job to spend my life. Now, God's put people in my life to, to help save my life. I have doctors and you know, a wife who encourages me to live a healthier lifestyle, and I think all those are, are, are appropriate. But, uh, but the question, when I stand before Jesus, it's not going to be, well, how hard you work to save yourself. The question is, how did you spend your life for my kingdom? And so what Mordecai says to Esther is this. <clears throat> you and all of your people are already under a sentence of death, but you are uniquely situated to do something about it. And I like this. Um, do you remember back when we, started, when we started this study of Esther? People who, who questioned the book of Esther and whether it belonged in the Old Testament canon, one of the things they criticized about it was there's no mention of God in the book of Esther, which is pretty rare for Old Testament books. I mean, the Bible's all about God. Why would there be a book in the, in the Bible that doesn't mention his name? A couple theories on that. I, I can't tell you with any authority what the answer is, but there are a couple theories that make sense to me, or, or one, one leading theory. The book is about the Persian royal court. Who was the human author of Esther? Some say Mordecai. Some say one of his followers. We don't really know for sure. But in all likelihood, it was written in the Persian royal court and I think, without mentioning his name, gives honor to, to the God of the Israelites. Yet, can you see that it would have been 2,500 years ago, dangerous? Um, there's no separation of church and state back then. There's no freedom of speech back then. Americans invented that just a relatively short time ago. And so, to, for a, a, an official in the Persian royal court to write a, a story giving honor to a foreign deity would have been unacceptable. And so it seems to me like the presence of God is very clearly alluded to here in Esther, just without the name. And the, these next two passages, I think we see clear indications pointing to God. Here's the first one. Mordecai says to Esther, if you remain silent, what will happen? Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Well, where's that? Where's the relief and deliverance for the Jews going to come from? If you read the rest of the Old Testament, it says over and over again, God will relieve and deliver his people. And so where does he have the faith to believe that there's going to be relief and deliverance for the Jews? Because he's read the Old Testament, and God provides that. And then this last part is a little more veiled, but he says, who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this? He's expressing, I believe, his faith that God has put Esther in the place she is to accomplish this purpose. And this is really the question I'm going to have for you at the end of the message today. And that is, where has God placed you? And what situation are you in that's maybe not about you, but about his purposes instead of your own? Um, you ever been in a situation where it just feels like a bad deal for you? Like, you know, I don't like this. You know, how did I get here? And my first reaction sometimes is, you know, God, why? Or sometimes it's, why me? Or, and my second reaction is, how do I get out of this? And, and, and all I want to do is just get out of the unpleasant, uncomfortable situation that I'm in. Well, that would be an appropriate response if it was all about me. But haven't you learned over, over the course of your lives that sometimes these situations that seem unpleasant or unacceptable at the first look when you get a chance to take a longer look or a, a more objective look, and sometimes this takes time, you can see that, oh, God had a plan for that season, and it wasn't the plan I would have chosen, 
but now I can see how God used my unpleasant circumstance to either bless others or to make me more mature or to equip me for the next season of my life. Um, I, I feel like I've seen that, and I, and I, know, I know you well enough to know that some of you have seen that as well. All right, let's go to Esther's answer. Another rather famous line, and uh, uh, often quoted, Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. This is a brave thing she said, but I, I, this is one of those lines where, as a, a literary critic, I think it gets more credit than it deserves. If I perish, I perish. Not exactly a great leap of logic. I mean, she's kind of laid out all the possibilities, right? I think, I think this is when people started saying it is what it is. Uh, because it seems like the same kind of phrase to me. But uh, let's take a look at it. This is another very, I would say, inescapable reference to God. Where's the inescapable reference to God in her answer? Fasting. Why do people fast? Now, people fast, you know, in the New Testament, they fast just as a spiritual discipline. And I, I approve of that. I think that's a cool thing to do. The Pharisees did it and made a big show of it. That's the part that was wrong. Jesus didn't say fasting was wrong. He said doing it for, for the show is wrong. In the Old Testament, they fasted for a few different reasons, sometimes for mourning, sometimes for repentance. In the post-exilic community, you can read about fasting in Ezra, Ezra. You can read about fasting in Daniel. And it always has the same purpose. It's like the bat signal. Uh, now, I haven't seen that, that reference. For, actually, I'm not sure I'm right about this. Um, do the movies, I haven't watched the movies as much as I watched the campy TV shows back when I was a kid with Adam West. Do the movies still have the bat signal? Yeah. Gotham City's in trouble and Commissioner Gordon puts this big sign, this big bat thing up in the sky. And what's that mean? It means we're in trouble, Batman come help us, right? What's fasting like for the Jews in the post-exilic community? It's God help us. We are in big trouble, please deliver us. And it I was trying to make a reference that, that brings it home. It's their plea for his help. And you can read about it plainly in Ezra, and you can read about it plainly in Daniel. They fasted and prayed to God for deliverance. So in Esther, which is pretty much the same historical context, when they fast, every Jewish reader knows it's fast and pray. And it's because a Persian writer's writing from Persia that it's fast and they leave out prayer. You know, they're not, they don't overtly mention God, but this is a clear reference to calling on God for deliverance. And then verse 17 ends the chapter, Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. So essentially this chapter is a conversation, Esther and Mordecai, and let's sum up the different parts of the conversation. First of all, Esther notices Mordecai wearing sackcloth and just tries to solve the surface problem. You need some new clothes. And he says, no, I don't want the new clothes. And then she realizes there's a big problem, so she says, well, what's up with you? What's your problem? And he says, Haman's trying to kill us all. You need to go talk to the king to save us. And she says, well, that's a death penalty crime. I'm not sure I want to do that. And Mordecai, somewhat harshly but very accurately, says, you're already under death penalty. Uh, and if you don't do something, you might be the one that's got a chance to do something about this. And so she says, all right, well, if I'm going to do it, let's all fast. So God will protect me as I go in. What's the application? 2,500 years later, what can you and I learn? And nobody's trying to kill our tribe. Um, what can we learn for our own lives from this message? 
first of all, deliverance for God's people will arise. When, when, when Mordecai said that, it reminded me of the triumphal entry when Jesus came into Jerusalem and people started praising him and others tried to shout to, to, to squash that. And he said, look, you can't stop them because if you stop them, the rocks and trees will praise me. This is what, this reminds me of that. God will deliver his people. Here, it's the Jews who need deliverance. The promises of God for Israel in the Old Testament, I believe, apply to all of the church in the New Testament. And we can count on sometimes, I think for some people it's not till they get to heaven uh, where vindication comes. But, but I think often it's before that. God will deliver his people. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. The next verse I'm going to read from the New Testament. It's such a common verse, it's almost a cliche. Um, and I don't want to sound trite. I just encourage you to just to meditate on the beauty and truth of these words. Romans 8.28 says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. If I really believe that's true, then what's the bad stuff that I'm fretting about? It's something that's working together for my good. The second point is your situation is not an accident. Sometimes we feel we, we, we face circumstances in our life as if we've stepped into a hole and we can't understand how this happened. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. And so if I got my eyes on the Lord, I don't have to worry about stepping in a hole because if I step in a hole, it's a hole he put there. And somehow I'm going to learn from that hole or bless somebody else who's in that hole or or have an opportunity to serve him. And even if I didn't like stepping in that hole and it didn't feel good, ultimately I can, I can be a part of advancing his kingdom if I'm acknowledging him. Thirdly, I believe your position is a divine appointment. And I mean your position in your family. I mean your position in your workplace, your position at church. Psalm 37 says, If the Lord delights in a man's way, he makes his steps firm. Though he stumble, he will not fall. For the Lord upholds him with his hand. Paul wrote about a couple of these things in Corinthians. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. So how did I get my place in life? How did you get your place in life? Paul says the Lord assigned it. And then, in addition to all the other positions you've got, Paul clearly identifies a position that we all have. All of us who are believers in Jesus, we all have the same position. It's messenger or ambassador. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 5. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. And so we all have been called to be messengers or ambassadors of his kingdom. Now, How are you going to do that? You're going to do it, I hope, outside these walls, in between Sunday to Sunday, as you go wherever you go. Now, I'm not talking about knocking on doors and talking to strangers. I know that's scary. But but where do you go? Uh, you know, for me, it's in line at the post office or, or uh, talking to a, or just responding to servers at a restaurant. I mean, just in those simple places as you go, are you the one that's a, a, a source of blessing, an instrument of kindness in a harsh and cruel world? Um, where do you have a chance to show the love of God? Wherever you go, you have a chance to show that love. Um, last application, God answers desperate prayers. You know, sometimes we minimize the spirituality of those, 
foxhole prayers, those, oh, God, please rescue me from this kind of prayers. But God does answer those. He's answered those in my life. He answers the, We're going to see him answer those for Esther and Mordecai, and I bet many of you have, have stories where he's answered them in your lives. Now, we're going to finish with the homework assignment. I, I, I promised this earlier on. I encourage everyone to do it, and then I, I believe that, that a few bold ones among you may be impressed to actually report your findings to the rest of us, and I think that'll be cool too. First of all, think of a situation in your life that meets two criteria. First of all, at first look, it looked like a bad deal for you. Like, I don't like this. I don't like the way it feels. I'm not comfortable here. Think of a bad situation in your life. And then secondly, and, and this might, for many of you, I think it's going to be a situation that's sometime in the past because it's easier to see this after some time has passed. Do you believe now that God puts you in that situation for his purposes rather than just you stumbled into that situation out of bad luck? And if, if you can identify those purposes, that would be cool. I, I, can think of, like I can think of several stories from my own life as I was doing this in the first service. I could actually see that, I could see that story on people in the congregation. If you, if you find that in your own life, if you, can, if, you, if you find a story from your past where it looked bad, but you feel like God had a plan and carried it out, and you're willing to tell that to the rest of us, I'd like, I'd like to keep them short because I expect there to be several. Um, I'm talking two to three minutes, just, you know, this was going on, I didn't like it, but now I see that God used that to prepare me for this, or God used that because I got to talk to somebody about Jesus in the situation. If you're willing to tell the rest of us about it, please send me an email. I'd, I'd like to plan an orderly service for next Sunday, so I'd like to know who's, who's going to be up. So it won't just be an open mic time, but I'll schedule you in, and you can let me know if you're able to do it first service or second service or both. If you're willing to tell, tell us a, a brief story, I'd invite you to both. I think testimonies are powerful, and I think it would be an encouragement to the congregation to hear your story. Um, any questions about that? Okay, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for... Uh, thank you for this message from your word. Lord, I thank you for the way that you have turned... Uh, turn my shame and sorrow um, into joy. And Lord, I just thank you for uh, 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 the way you've used um, uh, circumstances and situations in my life to prepare me, to equip me, to, to push me. And Lord, I ask that you would help me to, be, to recognize your hand of blessing, uh, to recognize your calling. And Lord, I ask that for everyone in this room, that we would see the um, the circumstances in our life not as just cosmic accidents but as opportunities to serve you lord help us to respond to those calls in jesus name i pray amen